And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was recorded on January 8th, 2021. Dale Hendricks has been growing and propagating plants professionally since 1975. In 1988, he co-founded North Creek Nurseries Incorporated in order to propagate and grow perennials and grasses with an emphasis on natives and garden selections of natives. In 2009, he founded Greenlight Plants LLC to build carbon-friendly and regenerative landscapes growing native, woodland and permaculture plants, organically and joyfully. He has been honored with the American Horticulture Society's Individual Commercial Award and the Perennial Plants Association Young Professional Award and the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society Award of Merit. He has taught plant propagation at Longwood Gardens and lectures widely. He served on the founding board of the Sustainable Business Network of Greater Philadelphia as co-chair from 2004 to 2007. He lives in Landenburg, Southern Chester County, Pennsylvania, with his family, where he gardens, propagates plants, and grows good soil. Welcome to the Planetary and Trees podcast, Dale. We're really delighted that you could be with us today. Uh, Hal and I were looking forward to this. And uh, you have a really amazing background. And I've known you for quite quite a while, um, and especially meeting you at at trade shows and through North Creek. So um, we're thrilled that you're here. Thank you, yeah. I think that here in the middle of our pandemic, we as horticultural people, as, as arborists, as green lovers, we are blessed that we can find solace in nature. And I think that um, more and more people are realizing that, knowing that uh, public gardens have, have had an increase in, in visitorship. Parks and, and local green spaces have had the same. We realize how important our large fellow friends out there in the landscape are to our vital su- survival. We horticulturists were on the front line of the climate crisis in our own way. We have a a lot of aspects, things we see every day in terms of insects, fungus, disease pathogens, old species, new species. We get to collect that data in our brain every day. Yeah, for sure. It's... um... It's, it's a gift and a curse sometimes, uh, driving around and seeing what we see that is invisible to most people. It, it, you're right. It is amazing. And uh, I'm reading a book called um, Braiding Sweetgrass right now. And I have um, great gratitude for Native populations in our, in our country. 
And the reverence for trees in particular, when they're making their um, black ash baskets and how they uh, ask the tree for permission to be cut down, to be made into uh, products that, that can be used, not leaving a scrap, not leaving any waste. Everything is utilized. And um, you as a, um, I, would, I would like to say maybe as a homesteader, as a uh, permaculturalist, as a grower, as a teacher, what perspective can you give us for trees down the line, for the future, for people who may be listening for the first time? And then also we'll get into the uh, John Hershey, friend of the trees. Wow. Well, where to start? Um, you know, one is the, the easy one is that we really have a huge amount of genetics in common with trees, much more than people realize. I mean, a little more with funguses than trees. But nonetheless, uh, these are really similar life forms. So we have native or innate, let's say, um, harmony with them. So we, we love them because they're, they're kind of almost us. The other thing I, I touched on in some of my other work is that when the sun shines on a bare black parking lot, a lot of heat is given back up. Uh, but when it shines on a tree, that's changing the chemical energy. And then as uh, time goes by, the tree transpires the water and provides cooling, not just from shade, but from the sweat, the transpiration. So trees are we need them for not just carbon sinks not just because we love to hug them but because they also help local and regional cooling in ways that aren't obvious not only are you a fabulous propagator and have been recognized for that but also um you have some insight about john hershey and the friend of the trees and I, I've heard about this through one of the presentations I've gone to through ISA, and I wanted you to give us a little bit of lowdown about the, uh, the Mr. Hershey program that he had. Sure, very interesting. Well, basically, John Hershey um, is no longer with us. He, he died in 67, so he was from Downingtown. And the real story starts with the Dust Bowl, okay? So he was tasked by the Roosevelt administration in the early 30s to get farmers to use more trees. The idea was, oh, geez, we're plowing everything, we're eroding like crazy, particularly on lousier soils and steep soils. Can we, A, not plow, and B, use more trees? So he was tasked with assembling the collection of trees for farmers, right? So down in uh, Tennessee somewhere, uh, he uh, ran a huge nursery where he collected all these, all manner of mulberries. So his idea with trees for farms was, you know, with the soil, but more importantly, to add resiliency and multiple crops to the farmstead. So maybe in June, you have the mulberries in July and August to November, you have the persimmons and you have honey locusts and chestnuts and other things. So his idea was started with the Dust Bowl and playing defense against the worst problems caused by predatory agriculture, we'll say, or stupid agricultural practices, maybe, grew into, oh, geez, these farm animals are healthy, they're happy, they're in shade, they get all these other multiple crops 
So that's kind of where the story begins. And I read in some or listened to some of the uh, information that you sent me, and there was one section about how, you know, planting honey locusts were great for pigs, for example. The, the pods were delectable for pigs. And of course, persimmons were great for local deer. If you were hunting deer, that was a great uh, a food to fatten them up and to help them during the winter as well the array of plants that he had collected or trees that he had collected turned out to be some of the best uh, plants for reforestation in our area here in southeastern Pennsylvania and throughout the state. Right, that, that kind of points to you know some of the value in, in the trees that are left is they've had 60 years of neglect <laughs> and they're thriving and giving good crops. So they're assembled from all over the South and Midwest and Mid-Atlantic, right? So they're selected, improved varieties of trees. Uh, so they have a lot of good, flexible genes in them, if you will, if you're thinking of adapting for climate change. But maybe we should go back to and uh, just briefly try to trace the Hershey thing. So he did that for a while, working for the feds, and then he came home to Downingtown, where he had started in the early 20s, a little nursery and farm. So he had a little one around um, Center City, Downingtown, if you will. And then in 45, him and his wife bought a bigger farm in Guthriesville, which is a Downingtown RD, a 72-acre farm, where he could demonstrate all this. So out there, he had newsletters and catalogs and um, Hopefully we'll put it in the show notes, this, this article that Max Pascal wrote. He wrote one for the Penn Hort magazine and, and one for his blog, has a hyperlink to all these Hershey <laughs> resources, right? So he had a catalog there where he'd call, talk about number one nut tree nursery, blah, blah, blah. So he really promoted this idea to farmers of the resilience and multiple crops you could get. So back to honey locust, a lot of us in horticulture see honey locust as great, easy, uh, ornamental shade trees because the main ones are bred for uh, thornlessness and for no pods. So Hershey was kind of running in a slightly different direction where he, he wanted those pods. So there's you know several different cultivars. We don't exactly know which is which by name of improved up to two foot long bred for extra sweetness honey locusts out there. So things like that are out there giving their tremendous gift of unbelievable productivity out, out in suburbia where most people think they're a mess. It, it's, it's such a, a crime uh, when all what nature and uh, frugal farmers would say is beautiful, free, carbon-negative productivity <laughs> is looked at as wasteful junk for the landscape helper guy who, who doesn't want to get off his lawnmower. And, and how you'll, you'll, you'll attest to this too, that in the city, People think that trees are trashy. That's right. That's the favorite adjective. Dirty. <laughs> Dirty. Dirty. And yes. then you look around and you see the remains of what humans have left behind. And trees aren't dirty at all. It's Humans are the dirtiest of all species. Right. Yeah. I, I could say that because look what we've done to the oceans and look what we've done to everything else. Yeah. Dale, the yeah, burning Dale. question and, the, just, and not to get you off track because I like where you're going. No, I, I've got notes. So. <laughs> Honey locust pods for human consumption. Is that a thing? 
Not really. Okay, so that's a good way to put Hershey's uh, trees in perspective is that he was really selling and pointing at farmers. He was really looking to have what we now call agroforestry and silvopasture and permaculture long before those names were invented. So the honey locusts, I, I get people to gnaw on them. They're sweet. They have nice pithy, kind of like molassesy sweet um I don't know what to call it, the filler between the beans in, in these leathery pods. They're very stringy. They're very leathery. They're really happier for sheep, cows, pigs. And they would eat the whole thing and... Uh... Yeah, and this is worth expanding on a little bit. So uh, there's a book called Tree Crops, Dash, A Permanent Agriculture. It was written first in the 20s and last republished in like 55. And John Hershey was greatly featured in this in the last version because the author, the guy named J. Russell Smith, the author was saying, and my friend John Hershey does this and grows this. So there's whole chapters about formulas for how much honey locusts could blend with how much corn to make how many happy hogs, how well the pigs did in the drought year when the grass was brown, but the persimmons still fell and, and, and gave a crop. So it's really uh, frugal, old-fashioned farming is what Hershey was uh, trying to do, right? So picture it after World War II, uh, agriculture went the industrial tractor and chemical way, but Hershey was there saying, look at these diverse landscapes. These farmers don't need to buy any fertilizer, blah, blah, blah. So he had that diverse farmstead vision, but it just kind of lost out to um, bigger forces in the and, economy. And having the animals eating the seed pods and then defecating left a nice, wonderful, nutrient-rich fertilizer for the farmer. Yeah, yeah. So we have... a access to these trees uh you know it's kind of a long story some are at the quaker meeting house in downingtown or near there some are on private property nearby and some are in private property of friendly homesteads so to zoom back out to today's uh hershey trees in downingtown it's a mishmash well the other very exciting thing for me and uh in all sincerity, because the, the joke I floated over the past few years is that I dabble in being a Tregan. And last year I hosted a small modest dinner party with some arborist friends and it had to be a Tregan centered menu that we put together. So fruits and nuts, but we did allow a little venison onto the menu, which seemed, you know, part and parcel and a decent extension of, of eating a, a tree friendly menu. But Man, I love the idea that the white oak could be grown to have acorns as sweet as chestnuts. The other thing to tell about the Hershey ones, and I think that's one thing I heard in the podcast I, when I first discovered you guys' podcast, was Ava was saying something about uh, they got a certain college to cooperate in research. We really need qualified arborists to, like, we need PhD candidates who want to write about one group of trees or another and, and arborist researchers and documenters out there, because we have enough permission now, enough friendliness to do this. But yes, that Hershey was trying to do many, many things. For years, you go to France or Italy and their prosciutto uh, gets a, a zillion dollars a pound because it's either acorn or chestnut finished. 
right? So he, he was a, a smart guy talking to farmers in these ways. Hey, you have a few oaks, try a few of my improved oaks for your children and grandchildren kind of thing. So I, I don't think he had one named yet. There's rows of hybrids that are mostly white oak with other things out there along the road that need huge amount of research. So please come out sometime, hug the trees with me, but we really need to find the tree sluice of the next generation, writers, storytellers, illustrators, researchers. Good point. That's really fascinating. Good point, Dan. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they're out there. And that's a great thing that why I was so excited to reach out to you about the podcast was we got to find these people who who are looking forward and in, in, in the details of this. So we don't know which honey locust is which. We got good guesses. We made our own names. We don't know which of the 10 or 20 kinds of persimmons we like. There's one called Dale's Favorite. There's one at Blah Blah Road Corner is, is, or our names for these. They're probably already named, right? Uh, so there's just so much uh, fun work to do. And it's also worth mentioning that these articles and the little bit of publicity have now gotten where Downingtown years ago had a tree commission. They abandoned it. Maybe two years ago, they re-upped their tree commission. They have a lot of activity around this as a group called Restore Our Roots in Downingtown. I think they only live on a Facebook group who are now Downingtown-based young scientists and things who are planting native trees, planning to do Hershey things. The other thing to know is that Hershey started planting in Downingtown in 1921. 21, what an interesting number. So this fall, there's gonna be uh, some kind of event If I was really smart, I would have written that date down. I think it's early October. But there will be some kind of public event featuring his 100th anniversary of all this because most people who live there still have no idea what this is, (laughs) have no idea about the importance, but a lot do. You know, so, you know, it's not that we've done uh, nothing to get this story out. We've done a fair amount. But most people are just oblivious and live their lives. It's interesting that you're talking about this because I was reading a, an old farm book back from 1935, I do believe it. I can't even remember the title of it. I have it up in my collection. And it was about a woman who was telling the story about how everything has a purpose and how the goats were brought in first to mow everything down. Then the pigs were brought in to uproot any stumps that were in the ground. And then it was easy for the farmer to go in and plow with his horse and his plow. And of course, the fertilizer was already in the soil because goats were there eating, grazing. Pigs were in there wallowing, digging up roots. And of course, the roots were used for other things. They were used in stumperies or for propagating they would plant around them and use them for propagation like they do in England they talk about trees and how important they are especially fruit trees how important they are along the hedgerows within the farmstead itself and the the apples would drop or the crab apples would drop and the and the farm animals who were next to that hedgerow were able to eat it and and provide a probably a more healthier uh meat than what we get today. There are a lot of younger people out there that 
are hungry for this information and we need to get that out to them so that they're aware of it because it's all about the process. It's all about how things happen. It's not always the end result that's the most important. It's the process to get to the end result. And I, I think that that's something that we really need to think about. Since permaculture is entering the lexicon, as we say, what would be two or three practical starting places for Joe and Judy, homeowner, in terms of moving forward with their own tree planting? They've just bought that special little three-quarter of an acre property, and they're looking out at the zoysia grass and the dying purple plum, and they want to start all over and start getting some crops that they can enjoy with their young family. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a wide open topic. Uh, so I would say, you know, you always have to start with your your dreams. You know, do you want that old fashioned apple that your grandfather liked? Yada yada yada. So so, what group of things uh, attract your interest? So a lot of people want uh, uh, fruit trees, or it could be majestic oaks, or it could be hybrid chestnuts. So there's just a million different ways to go, but kind of and let and if I could, let me just. Sure jump right in. So as you give us this list, see if you can also kind of address what that little backyard might look like, because I, I see Hershey mentioned it too. He was an early on board with mulching, and I'm thinking about developing that permaculture landscape, but at the same time, letting go of turf. Sure. Um, it's neat to know that even back, you know, uh, almost 100 years ago, John Hershey loved to plant all manner of trees and shrubs and diversity because he recognized you attract birds. What do the birds do? The birds help you fertilize just like having chickens or pigs or cows. <laughs> so the more our landscapes are native, multi-layered, diverse, the more birds productivity they have. So first the thing you might say, what does it look like? It might look like hardly any lawn and, and paths for walking and working and maybe just starting with you want your apple tree or chestnut tree, but maybe rather than a, a plunked in the middle of, of your turf that you would put a six or eight foot area around it that you might mulch with cardboard and wood chips and maybe even sprinkle some 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 minerals down. There's a whole other interesting thing about mineral flows in our landscapes that's not well known, right? Just ever so briefly, you know, 200, 300 years ago, we had great migrations of eel and shad and things pouring up our rivers that the foxes, wolves, whatever, bears would eat, and they'd scatter those ocean-borne trace elements all over the landscape, just like they do with salmon out west. So that nutrient flows largely stopped and our rains have gotten more acidic. So we're leaching out a lot of our nutrients. So we often need a little bit of trace element help. We need to um, realize that trees weren't born lonely critters all by themselves. So we can start what they might call a guild. There's different words for it, little designed polycultures where my tree might have some baptisias around it, some nice perennials, some currants or um, gooseberries or any kind of fruit-bearing shrubs because 
a lot of trees might take eight, 10 years to get mature. So in those times you have largely full sun. So there's nothing wrong with having, you know, even raspberries or garlic or even annual veggies in that ring of soil building you're doing. So what it looks like is diverse plantings of different types, less turf. And um, again, a lot of these good trees we're talking about, back to the Hershey ones, are overwhelmingly natives. So it, it, it checks a lot of the boxes we're all cheerleaders for. I think that that's a really good point that you're making. You know, and I, we don't want to villainize lawns because they do have a purpose also. Um, and the lawn, I think what we need to do is have more purposeful lawns. In other words, pick a lawn size that's going to be perfect for your family. And the rest of it, plan up with trees, shrubs, food crops, everything else. And if we were to think that way, rather than thinking, oh, I want a really big lawn, but are you going to use it or are you just going to mow it? That would give people a different perspective of how to manage their land. And by having trees doesn't mean you have to rake everything up. You don't have to rake everything up and put it into bags and throw it out on the street. No, you're actually getting rid of the most valuable thing. Um, one of the sustainable talks I do is don't get rid of your valuable um, nutrients. You're doing that by putting them into bags and bagging them up and putting them out on the street or holding rainwater on your property versus sending it downstream. You know, these types of trees um, and these types of plantings actually allow more water to percolate through to the, to the groundwater. And it's, that's extremely critical for healthy, clean water. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't recognize that leaves are, they call it solidified uh, sunlight and air right oh, so those leaves are co2 <laughs> breathed yeah, in it. that year dropped on the ground so all these great environmentalists with their battery powered mowers which is all great i have one but uh if you're exporting your carbon rather than adding it to the soil so this is another one of the rabbit holes i go down but there's a lot of the carbon cycle we don't pay attention to, and, and that's a big part of it. So leaves left in place not only add that carbon, but they funguses break them down. They make longer-term carbon. The worms eat them. The worms aerate them. So a lot of lawns gradually lose their aeration and go anaerobic, lack of fresh carbon to feed worms and other soil food web microcritters. You know, so it's complicated, but we need that continuing aeration process if we want to be good environmentalists of our soils, even be they turf. And I couldn't agree more, Eve. I'm, I'm not trying to beat up lawns. I just think we've overdone no, them by 90%. I don't, want, I don't want anybody to think <laughs> yeah. that we hate lawns because every one of us likes to put our feet into grassy pasture. But one of the other things that I learned um, when I was down at the Philadelphia Water Department at the pumping station there, they have a beautiful museum at the art museum. They were talking about mussels and how they um, increase and filter out impurities in the water system. And they were talking about how important leaves are even downstream, that these are, these are actually nesting areas for fish eggs and all kinds of other types of 
um, critters that live in the water that actually help to cleanse the water. So, you know, cleaning everything up and being real tidy is not good for nature itself. It's great well, to take our plastic bottles out and plastics and crap like that, but not to pull leaves and organic material out. Well, that, that whole comment you made reminds me going back to John Hershey, right? So the kind of farm he had was not cleaned up like this. It was cleaned up by animals eating those things. But the other is that comparing that to a regular farmland. So a regular farming, when they're raising annuals, cleans it like just like you're talking about, removes the productivity and diversity and has only one crop. So generally, annual production yields less and less carbon in soils, poor and poor soils that need brought in nutrients. So his, his vision was a farm that would gradually be improving in nutrient holding capacity, cation exchange capacity, soil carbon, even though I don't think he used that word, but he knew it. Uh, so um, yeah, this, this idea of, of cleaning up uh, applies on many levels and is almost always a problem. It, it's just something about our Western culture that um, neatness has been equated with virtue and we have to like reinvent ourselves to create diversity. And that's something that's so different about a lot of horticulturalists and people of your stripe is that we, you know, kind of goes to the word permaculture. We need to kind of reinvent our culture to yeah. appreciate diverse systems, not only appreciate them, but create them, nurture them, educate about them. Well, I think education is the number one thing when it comes to this. You know, there's a lot of articles out there now that prove the point that when they brought the bison back to Yellowstone Park, that they noticed that things that they thought went extinct really didn't go extinct. It was the, the connection between the buffalo and the, the traveling between the migration of the buffalo from one field to another, that um, they would carry seed within their hooves and on their fur and that was a way to disperse seed and we hadn't had it there since since the 18 the end of the 1800s when we had the buffalo massacre and it 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 also brought on the dust bowl in the 1930s and what we didn't understand was the importance of the buffalo and the importance of the of the wolf to actually uh, keep a, a close track of grazing animals like deer so that the system wouldn't be unbalanced. And it was unbalanced during that time period before the buffalo were brought back. Now we're even seeing that same connection with trees and shrubs and perennials, how closely they're connected with different animals. The, even the paw of a wolf carries seed within it. I, I had a wolf hybrid dog and he carried acorns in his paw and never even knew it until I got home. And I said, what is in your paw? And there's these acorns that he was trying to eat. So they carry that with them. So there is so much that we don't understand about nature that we're still learning about and that we're still discovering that that connection with trees is, is critical for survival, for our own survival too. Yeah, and the, everyone seems to agree that we were evolved in a savanna-type landscape, right? So it's not a flat lawn. It's not a dense forest. 
it's mostly open area spotted with trees and shrubs that uh, is most pleasing to us. So we can also, in times that we're scared, we can hide the trees, uh, but we can see enough that we can uh, protect ourselves. So there's, there's a reason we, we like the lawn and the tree. It, it kind of mimics the savanna in a very, very simple way. And it is pleasing to us deep in our bones. We're just looking to take and not have that be so dang oversimplified. And I meant to also mention when you were saying, Eva, that ecosystems need predators, right? And yeah, one one reason the buffalo built soils in, in let's say, the, the Midwest prairies was that they would munch and move, munch and move. So it, it's not like uh, you can keep them in one place and graze it down to bare ground. And we have a lot of our grazing that does that. So it's not whether buffalo or cows are good or bad for the land. It's how it's done. In these systems we're talking about, the predators keep them moving in really regenerative, restorative grazing, which is getting to be quite the art and science. Uh, you, you move them purposefully often enough. So you might eat only 50% of the green of the leaves, let's say, and then move them on after that disturbance. So that in a net sense, you're building the diversity and productivity. Is she into pawpaw at all? Well, it's funny. Yes, he was, but he admitted that it took him a long time to get them established. And what else is neat is you guys ought to consider getting uh, Neil Peterson on your podcast sometime. He's the the is a breeder of pawpaws from West Virginia, who's about our vintage, a very interesting fellow. So these guys had heard of Hershey. Hershey was out there. He's been kind of forgotten and rediscovered several times. We're just the latest guys to kind of rediscover <laughs> Hershey. So uh, when he was looking to breed the most improved pawpaws he could find, he read that Hershey liked them and had his catalogs and would sell some. So of all the different trees we found wandering around these back lots and landscapes, the pawpaws have been very underwhelming. They weren't that great. His honey locusts were great. His persimmons were great. Some really nice chestnut trees, a lot of really cool um, walnuts. I mean, we haven't really got into the even the diversity of the trees yet, but the pawpaws are very uh, forgettable, frankly. Uh, so he, A, learned to grow them later than a lot of his other crops. He was playing with them and uh, didn't have a, a knack for them or good luck. And then B, what he what he had were unimpressive, according to me, and, and also Neil Peterson, who went there years ago looking for the most improved cultivars he could get to start his breeding program. Well, the pawpaw, too, are typically understory or edge of the wood. So when you think about Hershey and his trees, they're usually trees and that you know are found more open or I could be wrong, but pawpaw seems to be an understory rather than an overstory tree. Well, in nature it is. And when you're planting new pawpaws, it, it's a trick. It, it takes us all a while to learn, but they're harder to establish plunking them into full sun. You can get away with it, but generally speaking, they'll establish much faster in half a day of shade. Uh, and I think he might've done that very thing. Everything he did was like in, 30 or 40 foot rows. And it's so neat going out there now in backyards of suburbia, I can see rows of, you know, grafted um, walnuts here and a row of seedling um, white oaks here and a row of honey locusts there. So you can see 
three rows of different trees on exact spacing. And that's why that our buddy Max in that article calls it America's oldest food forest. I guess it's the oldest planted by white folks in straight lines anyway. Maybe we'll, we'll say that much because uh, we certainly didn't invent uh, food forests and rewilding us, us pale faces uh, didn't. No. But I wanted to touch on an, another thing is that that area I was talking about in, in Downingtown where you can see the three rows of three different trees. I mean, they're largely grown in to the casual eye. It looks like, you know, your woods in the back uh, of suburbia everywhere, but underneath it, we can find uh, hazels and he was really into um, hybrid hazel nuts, you know, so that's another very useful nut crop that every five or eight years can be whacked to the ground, renewed, and it coppices well, if your listeners know that, that term, C-O-P-P-I-C-E, where you whack it at near ground levels is coppicing, and then they grow 8 or 10 or 12 feet straight rods. So the hazels were often used to weave fences. And uh, so you can get those straight rods that way to, to make rustic fences and even fishnets back in the day. There's like 9,000-year-old woven hazel webs they're finding in the English Channel in shallow areas that were really old that were fish weirs, you know. So at the high tide, they'd put them out. And low tide, the water would go through and the fish wouldn't. So isn't that cool stuff? So, so cool, that, yeah. That's, that's how they, they used to use hazels in uh, between England and Belgium, if I have it right. I know Princeton Nurseries used to sell a street tree version of Coryless. Avarina? It's the, uh, it's the Turkish filbert. Right. We had them on campus at Temple University, two beautiful ones. We lost one, and the other one uh, would send up, you know, seeds started from it, but the reproduction was not there because the big one was gone. They like to be cross-pollinated with each other. Sounds like something to be added to the species list for the permaculture zealot, then, is if you could get your quarry list to become nut-bearing. Yeah, yeah, and there's, there's breeding now at Rutgers that's doing uh, great work on that. That would be another great guest to have. I forget his name, but I could get it to you. We successfully bred uh, hazels that will thrive in our climate. So it's been a while since they've been a successful nut crop here in the East because of different diseases. It's a little over my head. Three of my young friends have formed something called the Keystone Tree Crops Cooperative that are looking to pay people. So this is interesting. And uh, Hershey didn't plant these specifically, but there's many different kinds of hickories. There's one called the bitter nut hickory that uh, is hardly you know, used for human consumption, but it has a high quality oil. And you squeeze the oil and it tastes like uh, pecans because they're closely related to pecans. And you can use it for cooking like olive oil, and it actually tastes better, lasts as long, and can command as good a money off tree crops. So as years go by, just this year, they've started squeezing little samples, but they're going to be paying people to go out and collect these nuts and make a local bite of the apple of our own olive oil. Imagine an olive oil that is local from tree crops that, that tastes like pecans not too shabby. I can get you guys a taste of it. You know, That's really I'm, something. I'm, our, I'm allergic. Unfortunately, I'm allergic to nuts. But getting back uh, to the hazels, <laughs> hazelnut, and I, I still love nut trees. I don't care. I'm allergic. But 
there is a world shortage on hazelnuts because of the demand in Nutella and hazelnut coffee and so on and so forth. And, you know, when Nutella came on the scene, it just kind of blew up the hazelnut industry. Well, actually, I can I can rarely reference world travel, but when I was in Italy a year ago last summer, I can I saw quickly that Italian farmers had converted in a big way to hazelnut production. That's what we were seeing. We were expecting to see a lot of different things in terms of the Mediterranean crops like grape, but the monoculture was hazel. Uh, in a way, it's a shame, you know, because a lot of us guys, you know, uh, I haven't been to the, the, the chestnuts uh, in, um, in France and uh, Italy and places, but they're not just chestnuts. Often they're chestnuts, hazels, sheep, cows, uh, so it's these multi-layered landscapes that are partially open that really uh, get to us when we when we go to monocrops. I think much is lost, including some of the great identity we find and great affection for the landscape itself. You know, it feels good to us when it, it's diverse like that. But I wanted to also circle back to something that there's such opportunities for edible crops for these permaculture and home-based friendly trees of all kinds, it's just not funny. So there is opportunities for young folks to start nurseries and, you know, uh, maybe go in a slightly different direction. A lot of these trees have been propagated so long, they're not patented and patentable. It's a free, shareable, open mm, type of vibe. Your average garden center, you go there in spring and they got things grown in the Carolinas and you don't know party and what's not. So there's great things about relocalizing our food system, but we really need to expand the food system to <laughs> the home yard system like we were talking about. Absolutely. And get, and I have seen and heard from a client of uh, people that's you can get a nice pawpaw variety uh, seed sprouted from Etsy. Lots of people are starting to grow their little specialty trees and selling them on websites and platforms like Etsy. Well, getting getting to that, we did have Christopher Uland on from Harmony Hill Nursery, who said that exact thing that you just said, that, you know, people can have little nurseries in the city. They can go collecting on a weekend and then bring it back. If they ha- if it needs stratification, they can put it in the refrigerator until it's, you know, meets the stratification requirements and then plants them up and have a little nursery in your backyard and, and, and sell to the local community. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that we need to have more of that as we see nurseries disappearing right and left because they're far more valuable to a developer than uh, to a farmer. Harmony Hill Nursery, his nursery is in Downingtown. Right. So just this fall, we took him on the long and winding Hershey tree tour. So he'd heard about him, but he hadn't been out there until a few months ago. So he's like a newly reconnected buddy buddy. And he's coming to me, Dale, I need someone to grow liners of these. You know, mm-hmm. So there's opportunities out there today who, who, who can do the grafting, the seedling growing, and, and all these things. So... Um, uh, this is what got me back in 75 when I first got into horticulture was it just blew my mind how exciting it was to propagate plants. Like, wow, you could really start a whole new plant from a leaf of a begonia and things like that. Horticulture has 
not always done itself great favors. I think a lot of us in horticulture are very chummy, clubby to where we might chase out people who don't speak Latin. And we have to really invite everybody in because I'd always go to a party or event and people say, oh, you're a horticulturalist and gardener as if I was some special kind of breed. And I'm saying, no, everybody and their grandmother has these gifts and talents and affinities for plants. It's not something special. It's sad because it used to be virtually everybody was was doing this type of thing. So we have to invite more people into our our little club. I was always less fearful than others about letting information out. And in my case, I think it helped us because people would go to North Creek as this source of knowledge and information and it raised our profile. And so, you know, the defense and fear-based approach isn't always justified. We covered a lot of territory. And we opened up a lot of new territory. I mean, the whole notion of plant a trillion trees, it almost changes for me and grows show by show. And now I'm thinking all about nut crops as particularly as a way to lure people into the game of, hey, plan up your property, eat a pawpaw, eat a fig. Excellent. We appreciate it greatly, Dale. And we hope to have you again on our show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings and have a good day. Thank you.